Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Amen. Good morning. I was joking with Mariana about, is it naked or is it naked? (laughs) Said, we'll never know. We'll never really know. Okay. Well, welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We started a new series on the book of Genesis just a, a few weeks ago, and we did so because... I think our culture is asking a lot of questions right now, asking questions about who am I and what's the purpose of everything and meaning and purpose and gender and sexuality. And a lot of that is because we don't know where we're going to go unless we know where we've come from. And I think Genesis helps us here. It gives us that foundation. So that's why we're looking at it. Now, today, we get to the moment in history where... It's the first time after God had repeatedly said what he made was good, right? He made the birds. It was good. He made the sun. It was good. He made everything was good. And then now in verse 18, for the first time, he says, it's not good. A number of years ago, there was a man, his his name, great name, Wolfgang Dirks. He went into his flat in Berlin about three weeks before Christmas His next-door neighbors didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Um, They didn't see anything strange. His his bills were being paid through automatic deduction through his uh, bank. Five years later, after his bank account ran out of money, only then did the landlord show up, unlock the door, go inside, and find the remains of Wolfgang sitting in his chair watching television. 
The television had, five years later, burned out because it had been on 24-7, but the, his Christmas lights still worked just fine. Nobody had asked, where's Wolfgang? Wolfgang died, and no one noticed. Now, I know nobody's going to challenge the idea that we all need relationships, but I think Genesis is going further. It's saying so much more, because this little line right here, that it is not good, this declaration over humanity is happening before the fall. It's happening before things have gotten bad, which means then any desire that you might have for friendship— any desire that you might have for more than friendship, for marriage, and, and, and more, it's not a sign of your imperfection. It's actually a sign of your perfection. It's not a sign of, of uh, a, a flaw in your programming. It's actually a sign that this is part of your created nature. Also, um, this passage is the passage that Christians tend to go to to talk about marriage. And, that, that might be me. Maybe not this out here. Could be. Who knows? Let's see. I apologize. Um, this is the passage that Christians go to. It probably is me. It's my fault. Hold on. I don't know how to put this on my belt. There we go. Oh, maybe not. Put it back in there. Go like this. Okay. This is the passage that Christians go to to talk about marriage because primarily this is a, um, uh, what we're seeing here is that, that marriage is not a social construct. It's not just a, a governmental uh, institution. Marriage is a biblical idea found here in uh, our text. So that being said, as much as I think that this is talking about marriage, I think that our text is, is getting at the DNA, the essence, the ingredients of what you need for friendship. That the text shows us, even though this is talking about marriage, actually this is the very first relationship that we see in the Bible. So not all friendships are marriages, but all marriages, I would argue, are friendships. So let's look at three things here. Let's look at the pattern of relationships. Let's look at the problem with relationships. And let's look at the potential power possible in relationships. A lot of P's there. But pattern problem, and then the potential power possible. So first, the pattern. What is the DNA? What is the essence of relationships? In other words, if you want to know how to have and develop and enjoy and participate in deep friendships, I believe there's no better place to go to than here, right? The very first relationship. Uh, biblical scholar Derek Kidner points to three things that are essential for friendship. He call, let's call them keep, candor, and counsel. I know there's a lot of alliteration happening today, but keep, candor, counsel. First, keep. Go back to our text. What you'll see here is that there is a promise happening. There is a covenant. Uh, God makes covenants in the Bible with his people. These are lists of blessings and curses to be in formal relationship with him. But this, the language is found in our text. Look in uh, 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 verse 24. That a man will leave his father and mother and is united to his wife. That's, this is a proclamation of union, of what relationship would look like. This means then, I think, that the core to all relationships at some level, yes, marriages, but I would even say friendships, is the idea of keeping a promise. 
It's the idea of, of being constant and consistent and committed to each other. Because look at the language, leave and united, go and stay. Uh, growing up in this town in New York, I, I've actually seen people uh, here sometimes to really have friendship, you basically have to go to other people and kind of look each other in the eye, in the eye and say, hey, are we, are we doing this? Are we, we're gonna, are we gonna, we're gonna make this happen? Are we gonna commit to each other? And you have to kind of make that, that promise because that's what it means to, to, to stay. To, let me help us with the contrast. I think one of the problems our, our culture is played with is, and the reason why I have a hard time finding friendship, it's because we want the convenience of autonomy. We want the ability to be able to go where we want and do, and not, have, and not have anybody ask us to do anything else. And yet at the same time, we still want the support and care that real commitment has. So it's weird. We want to be able to ghost somebody because I, I just can't deal with you. You know, I can't even. But then when we need them, we want them to be back in our lives. And I, I think that's, that's, that's the problem. You can't have it both ways. Um, we're uh, coming up on our, our five-year anniversary here at Redeemer Lincoln Square next month. And I know I kind of let the cat out of the bag there. But um, what this means is I've, we've been here for a little while. And over the years, folks have come to me uh, and said, Mike, uh, you know, I've been at Redeemer Lincoln Square. Um, I've been coming here for a while, but I just, I just don't, real, I don't feel really connected here. I, I think I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to another church. And as a, as a pastor, what I end up saying to them is, you know, I, I try to diagnose the problem. I go, okay, well, can you tell me who at, at, at church that you uh, really regularly spend time with? Who, who do you weekly or on a regular basis are you committed to? And then they say, well, uh, you know, I, I tend to travel a lot or, you know, I'm away on the weekends or, you know, I don't have time to get in a community group or or see people. And so when I, I really push them, they say, well, uh, okay, I, nobody. And I go, well, well, wait a second. If you're not in proximity with anybody, and you're not actually constant with anybody, and you're not actually doing life with anybody, of course you don't feel connected, because guess what? You're not. You're, you're actually not. You, to keep is, it, it means to be able to have those kind of relationships. I would argue that in marriage, you take vows to say I'm going to be together, but I would say in friendships, you're doing the same thing. Maybe not vows, but you are, are, the DNA of friendship is that you're going to have people that you regularly put yourself around and do life together. Where people can cry on your shoulder and you can cry on their shoulders. Where they, you grant, grant them access. They can call you at any time and you can call them. And do you have those? Do you have those kind of relationships in your life? That's keep, number one. Two, candor. Uh, in the di- I, I definitely read all the Divergent series, this sort of uh, youth literature from uh, about a dystopian future world where there's, a, there's five factions. And uh, one of these five factions believes that the problem, the reason why humanity has all these issues is because of duplicity and deception. And so they think the solution is, is honesty and truth and never lying and never cheating and never stealing. And so they call themselves candor. To be truthful. And you see this in our text. In the very last verse, it talks about how Adam and Eve, they uh, were naked. And you say, okay, well, how is nakedness related to truth? Well, notice it says here in the text, they're naked and they felt no shame. See, what happens in that, what's going on there? Why do you have shame? You feel shame 
when people see things, you want to hide it. You want to go away. But the fact that they felt no shame meant that they could be honest. Put it the other way around. Why often are we dishonest with other people? We're dishonest because we're trying to hide. We're afraid if they knew the truth, I wouldn't get what I think I need. That's why we're dishonest. But the fact that they were naked and felt no shame, it means that there was trust. So we're not talking about, this is not just talking about physical nakedness now. It's, it's talking about a lot more, which I guess I have to pause here. This is the reason why the Bible argues that sex outside marriage actually hurts humanity. I, again, living in this town, I, I always kind of chuckle when, when people uh, tell me that um, Christianity is so prudish when it comes to sex. And I go, what are you talking about? The very beginning, they're walking around naked. Right? This is, we're, we're very body positive here, right? We, 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 there's no fig leaves right now, you know? Like, what are you talking? We're not prudish. The reason why the Bible says that sex outside marriage is, it hurts you is because when you are physically naked with each other, but you're not emotionally, spiritually, legally, financially naked, then what's happening is, is you're not really being naked. You're not really fully vulnerable. And when that happens, you can't have candor. And that leads to the relational breakdown. Basically, what I think is going on is you're saying, hey, I'll share my body, but I'm not going to share me. I'm not going to share my whole life with you. Uh, I, this is why I always, I, this, is, this is me, I guess. I chuckle in, in sort of, the, it, it, you know, in the serious sex scenes in movies. And again, I'm not prudish. I'm not chuckling. Ah, I'm more nervous. It, it's, it's more that they're trying to show intimacy and vulnerability. But I always had this image of like God being like, hold my beer. That this, is, this is not vulnerability. Because unless you're also vulnerable emotionally and spiritually and legally and financially, you don't really have this full shared lifeness. And there's this, this disconnect then when, when you're doing this physically, but you're not doing it in any other form, then you, it's basically, you're saying you can have my body, but not my soul. I think in the same way, your friendships, your relationships will be as deep as you're able to be vulnerable, like really vulnerable. I'm not talking about sex anymore. I'm saying you will know that you have a good friendship to the uh, degree that you're able to say something hard and, and potentially you know, rough and messy, and you stay in relationship with that person. That they don't reject you and you don't reject them because as hard as that conversation was, they know that you have their best interest in mind and vice versa. And I, so I guess my, my, I implore you, what, how many relationships do you have like that? At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. How many friendships do you have? That's candor. Third, last pattern for deep relationship counsel. You say, where's that in the text? Well, 
not once, but twice in our text, the word suitable helper shows up. And it's referring to Eve, right? For Adam, no suitable helper was found in verse 20, but it also says this in verse 18. I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, one of the sad things about translations is that there's, there's meaning that's lost. And what stinks is um, this term has been grossly misused and misunderstood over the years as uh, misogynistic. Because in English, the word helper always has connotations of subservient, right? My little helper. It, it's somebody who uh, is beneath you on a, on a different level. But the Hebrew word, if you did an analysis of this word, you don't see that at all. In fact, if you took the, the usage of this particular Hebrew word throughout the entire Bible, 90% of the time, it's used about God. So go to, if you want a, a, a text, go to Exodus 18.4. And there, what you, it says this, God is my helper who delivers his people from Pharaoh. And so obviously, if God is my helper, he's not subservient. Uh, in fact, what it, it means so much more. And notice, by the way, there's another modifier here, suitable. And suitable in this, uh, in this context means uh, somebody who is one who is like him. So slam those two phrases together. What God is saying is, I'm going to make one who is like him suitable, but somebody who brings something to the table that he doesn't have, but he needs. That's how that term is being used. And if you do it that way, then the implications are amazing. Just the stay inside marriage. What, what it's saying then is, when it comes to sexuality, there's something about maleness and femaleness that the other person brings to the table that they need that you don't have, and vice versa. That there's something similar about each other, but there's something also very, also very dissimilar in maleness and femaleness that you need. And so here's what's crazy. We always talk in society about how good diversity is. Well, Christianity says intergendered relationships is the best version of diversity and unity put together. Mind blown. In a mosaic of beauty. But that, let's just let's be more general, right? Let's zoom out again. More broadly, here's, if, if this is true, and this is an essential ingredient for friendship, then your counsel is you bringing something to the table that the other person needs that they don't have. My oldest um, uh, daughter, sometimes we're getting into homework and math homework, and sometimes she comes to me and says, hey, Dad, I need your help. I need your counsel on math. Because uh, I have something that she doesn't have that she needs. Of course, I think what she's learning is that we're more similar in our math skills than <laughs> dissimilar. More unity than diversity there. Um, but here's what's so exciting. My math skills are actually based on, you know, my knowledge and just experience. But that's not what's going on here in the text. Right? Eve, what God is saying is there is something innate in the nature of Eve, of how she was created, that she has... That Adam needed. That you have, in other words, you, just how you were made right now, in who you are, you have something to offer. You have a help that other people need that they don't have, but you do. And if you brought that, that means there's hands only you can hold. There's tears only you could dry. There, there, are, there are people in and around you that only you could really help and love them and serve them and care for them that nobody else would be able to because of how you were made. 
and who you are. That, guys, that reprograms us. The world might tell you you're just a bunch of carbon and atoms and randomly thrown together, and no wonder we just sit around and we consume content, we put the headphones in, and we just want to zone out and amuse ourselves to death. This is saying there is so much more to you and who you are than that. That you have infinite value to God and the universe, but also to each other. Because of your innate nature. You and I, we need to take that to the bank. Store that for a rainy day. Access that every single day. Because that is how we were made. So, now add them all together. All the ingredients. Keep, uh, candor, and counsel. That's the DNA for friendship. That's what this first relationship is showing us. And ask yourself, how many people in my life do I have that with? Who am I doing that with? Where do I get that? And by the way, if you don't have this, then you, I say this very gently, don't come complaining that you don't have friendships because you don't, unless you have these things. Now that gets us to our problem now, doesn't it? What's the problem here? Look at the data. All the statistics show marriage tanking. Nobody's getting married in America. People are waiting longer and it's happening less. Uh, friendships tanking. Every decade, Americans report they have less and less friendships in their life. Uh, Every decade that you get older, the data shows that you have less and less friendships in your life. Less and less relationships. They're thinner. What's so crazy about all the technology we have is we have actually technically more relationships. You're you're in contact with your seventh grade friend that you didn't really want to be in, but you, you are. But you don't have keep candor and counsel. And so I think this is this is a problem in that sense, but it, it, there's another level to this. I, I th- and I say this gently. I, I'm only in my 40s, so I'm probably too young to talk about this, but I've, I think I've started to live long enough. I've had a cycle of, of, of people, some of my closest friends and ministry partners were people who I did deep life with, whom secrets they've told to me and I told them my secrets. People I kept and candored and counseled with, and I've watched those relationships blow up. I've seen those relationships end. I've seen them implode. And some of the most painful experiences I've had, and probably you've had too, is when people leave. Or when you felt like you've had to leave. And it's often on bad terms. All, it's all that time and effort and, and experiences that you pour into these people. And then they're like, Poof, they're just gone. I think this is why. No wonder we we take our time. No wonder we're so careful. Like, people aren't dumb. We are not getting relationships as much because it's actually a huge investment. It takes a lot out of us. And often it hurts too much. For me, there's not a week that goes by I don't dwell at some level to say, "What, what, what went wrong? What happened? And it just, it hurts so much. And so that's the problem, right? Marriages blow up. Friendships blow up. You leave them, they leave you. And now add it to the fact, again, I grew up in this town. There are some, in New York City, a lot of times relationships end not because anybody's wrongdoing, but just because people leave. You've left, they've left. How many, how many of you in the pandemic have lost friends? How many of you maybe in the pandemic you moved into, into this town and therefore you don't have friends? And you're here at LSQ and you're like, do I really want to do this again? 
Do I really want to re-up again? Do I really want to start all over again? That's the question. What's going to motivate you? What's going to give you the power and the strength and the encouragement to develop keep, candor, and counsel all over again? That's the question I want to ask, and that's how I want to end. Last point, the potential power. Like the, the secret to the potential power I think the text gives us, it's back in that last verse. It's it, the power to, and, and ability to give you a drive and a willingness to start over again, to, to stay in it, to have keep, candor, and counsel, I think will happen to the degree that you're not afraid that people see your flaws and will reject you. It's, it, it comes down to that. And what do I mean by that? Notice the last verse says they're naked and they're no, there's no shame. I mean, I, I, this week I just, I just dwelt on that. Naked, but no shame. I, shame is the feeling that I am wrong, right? Guilt is I've done something wrong, but shame is I am. And I think, it, where does shame come from? I th- Imagine every thought you've ever thought that has been quiet that nobody else has heard, but imagine that was broadcast to the whole world. Would you be able to say, I have no shame? Probably not. Right, that's why, I, I, what's going on there? That's why we spend our lives spinning and shading and cultivating an identity so that I could walk out these doors and feel like I'm okay today. Because, because of shame. That I feel like I need to cover and spin. And I think it's why our relationships and our marriages are fraught. Because at some level, there's not that full nakedness because of that shame. And I would argue that unless you deep down have a sense of security and acceptance and love, you will never really be able, A, to let anybody in, and B, allow them in again and again and again. New people, old people, people who've hurt you, people that you don't know. Only then will you be be willing to start over and try again and re-up again or restart again. And I would argue you can't do that and you won't do that unless this happens. So, so how do we get it? Well, we need to fast forward to, to the New Testament. There, in John chapter 15, I think Jesus tells us the best version of this. He says this phrase, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's an interesting phrase. Greater love, nothing, right? <laughs> Here are the absolute phrases. Then the individual who lays down their life for their friends. See, Jesus is getting the essence of friendship. It's the giving of yourself. And you say, yeah, but I don't know how I can give myself if, if everybody's always taken from me. But then Jesus says, the greatest act of friendship the world has ever seen is one who lays down his life. And Jesus is that for you. Jesus came to earth not to serve, but to be, to, to serve. Sorry, he didn't come to earth to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to take, but to give. He didn't come to stay, you know, invulnerable. He, he came to be vulnerable out in the world. He needed to save us from our own shame for the things that we have done. We also needed to be saved from the shame of other people, what they've done to us. And yet him dying for us makes him the greatest friend in the world. Think about him. Keep no one was more committed to you than Jesus, even death on the cross. Candor, right? The truth, he knew the truth of who you were 
all your flaws, the parts of your life that you even hide from yourself. He knew every last aspect of the things that you've done, are doing, and you will do, and yet he stayed. He had that kind of integrity, that kind of candor. Counsel. Who's the, who is the best suitable helper to bring you something that you need, that you didn't know you had needed, but you had to have? Jesus. Every single time. You have no better friend in Jesus. And by the way, here it is. To the degree that you enter into this relationship. And not just theoretically, cognitively, but experientially. Let yourself realize the utter full acceptance that you have. The love. The forgiveness. The hope. To the degree that you have that, that you're so filled in whole and complete through that. To that degree, will you be able to re-up again in your friendships? To that degree, will you be able to not get back at those who took from you and to start over again? To stay, to not run, to not give up? And here's what you're going to do. If you feel that loved, if you have that deep down in who you are, you're going to actually seek out other images of God so you can get glimpses of the one who loved and saved you, right? If you're made in his image, then the other images of God give you other glimpses of him. What do I mean by that? I could quote uh, a famous poet right now or a philosopher, but I'm going to go to Ryan Reynolds' recent film, Free Guy. Um, I know it's not high class, sue me, but here's the premise. The premise of this movie is there's this guy who is a computer game character. It's not real. He's, he was a, a, he's a program, and he doesn't know he's a program. And there's real people who enter into this program like the metaverse, and they interact, and they, they do these missions, but he's not real. He was created by a programmer, and yet there's this scene at the end of the movie where he realizes his nature. He realizes his programming, and it, he realizes it was actually based on this real-life girl that he's been interacting with, that all of his likes are actually her likes, same ice cream flavor, same, um, same everything. And he says to this real-life girl at the end, he says this. He says, I love you, Millie. Maybe that's my programming talking. But guess what? Somebody wrote that program, and, and therefore I'm just a love letter to you. Somebody out there is the author of that love letter. And I, I, I was streaming this online, so I paused it, and I had this existential moment you really shouldn't have with this kind of movie. <laughs> but I said, oh my gosh, wait a second. If all of us were made in God's image, and therefore God is our programmer, what if all the uniqueness of each one of us, what if all that is actually a love letter written to us from the author telling us that there is high beauty in the world, that there is love, that there is truth, and that he does love you? And then that means then all the simple things that you think is just boring, mundane, life like, moving a hand is, is just an act of a, it's a miracle. Because it's, it's, it's not just life. It's God saying, I'm here, I'm for you, I love you, come home. Come back, see me. The fact that we have cognition, the fact that you have agency, the fact that you and I could just even, even pause and reflect for just a moment on the sheer enormity of the situation that everything around us just might be him pointing us back to himself. How amazing would that, that, that you can see and touch, that we can interact, 
What if the images of God around us are, are telling us to come back into relationship with him? And what's the best version of that, right? Jesus is the best image of God as he comes in the flesh. Further up and further in with him. What, what if you believe that? What if you kept with Jesus? What would keep mean? It means you'd be committed to him. That you would stay in relationship with him. What would candor be? You would talk to him about your flaws, about your hopes and your dreams. What would, what would counsel look like? You would go to him for counsel in scripture, in your life, through prayer. Friends, will you come back to him? If you don't believe this, if this is not your relationship, I would, argue, I would ask you, then where are you getting that deep sense of security? What's going to give you the ability to go back into relationships? Because if you have this one, when you know that he sees you to the core but loves you, into the stars, you will be able to handle, by the way, any friendship, any marriage, bad or good. You know why? Because you don't need from those relationships anymore to give you what you think you need. You have it in him. And at the same time, you can also handle not having any friendship or marriage that you do want because you have him. His keep now is going to be the basis for your commitment to other people. His uh, uh, being a suitable helper to you will allow you to be a helper to others, to give them what they need but, and what they, but they don't know they want. <laughs> Friends, ironically, I think if we had this, if we had this relation with Jesus, it would allow you to be the friend to other people that you've always wanted to have for yourself. And if you did that, if those people had that kind of friend, if you were that person, it would hit them, and they would change them, and then they could be friends to other folks. It would change the world if we really absorbed this, really had this, but it begins with him. Let this change you, and if it does, we can change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what if, what everything around us, it's your love letter saying, come back to me. Father, when we see in Jesus, we see you greater love. There's no one than this. They lay down his life. You, you did that. When we make small moves towards each other in our lives, I pray that we reflect you. We reflect the ultimate version that we see on the cross. Change our lives, Father. We, we, our minds are filled with so many other things that we think we need, that we have to have Father, if we're lonely today, I pray that we would see the ingredients before us and then ask ourselves, how do we change our lives to actually do this? If we set up our lives so we don't have the time for it, I pray this convicts us, pushes us, and asks, makes us. Um, and I pray if we don't have that, I pray we go further up and further in into this relationship with you. And that, Father, that might change us from within. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.